0: As we're doing a verse by verse exposition of Revelation every week, you saw how I did two different teachings of Revelation 17 a couple weeks ago. One was more of a biblical theology, more, less of an exposition and more of a, a uh, broad 30,000 foot picture. We're going to do that again with this chapter. And I'm actually going to be in my classroom filming it live for you guys because we're going to be on my whiteboard. We're going to show you some diagrams. We're going to really teach uh, in a different way uh, next week. So hopefully you can join us next week for that. And that is one of my favorite lessons um, I've ever ever taught. So hopefully you can be there for that. All right, so let's open in a word of prayer and we'll dig into Revelation chapter 19, part one. Tonight. let's pray together. Our Father and our God, it's in Jesus' name that we owe you everything, Lord, that uh, everything is from you, everything is through you, and everything is to you. So Lord, we pray that you would use this next hour of our lives, Lord, to grow us, and not just for our own sakes, but for the sakes of everybody we ever come into contact with, that they would see you, Jesus, in clearer and brighter ways uh, through us. So may you be pleased to work your works in us, Lord, and um, be honored with our open Bibles and our full attention towards you. Uh, We love you, and we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Revelation chapter 19. So we had Babylon's complete and utter destruction in chapter 18. She's been judged uh, for... Her um, political and commercial ways, she has been judged for her religious ways, and she has been ultimately destroyed and not welcome to participate in the new heavens and the new earth. Now in Revelation 19, we're going to get heaven's reaction. We're going to start with heaven's reaction to the destruction of, of Babylon. So John writes, Revelation 19, 1, he says, after these things, I heard a loud voice. Now, my version says what I just read, after these things, I heard a loud voice. I think what's more technically correct from the original language is, it says, after these things, I heard as a great voice. I heard as a great voice or as a loud voice um, of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. So here's the reaction of Babylon's destruction. And these are from the people in heaven. So these aren't like earthly people that are just like so glad to see people suffer. This is the sanctified holy reaction of the destruction, that are, the, uh, the destruction of things that are against God. So, God is all that is true, all that is right, all that is holy, all that is supposed to be. And what just got destroyed are all things that did not uh, participate in that, that did not want that. So, the reaction is this Alleluia. Now, that's the Greek version of the word from Hebrew, which is Hallelujah. Obviously, very close. But I want to talk about the Hallelujah for a second. This word, Alleluia, for a moment, only appears four times in the New Testament. Now think about the books and the chapters in the New Testament. Where do you see the Alleluia? Well, out of the four occurrences, they all happen right here in this chapter only. So of all of the chapters in the New Testament, you'll never see that word Alleluia. But the four times it occurs, it's all here celebrating the destruction of everything that's anti-God. Praising God for what he's done, for the things that were against him. So, hallelujah now comes from the Hebrew word hallel, which is the verb to praise. So when we scream hallelujah, we're screaming praise. And the jaw at the end of hallelujah is God's name, Jehovah. So we're saying praise Jehovah, praise God. Or another rendering would be praise Yahweh. So this is a, 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 a wonderful, wonderful praise word. You can see San Anselm of Canterbury. He considered this word to be an angelic word. Incapable of reproduction in any human language. He said it's meant to convey the full measure of blessedness in heaven. And the emotions that are appropriate for it. So, uh, my early early teaching career uh, when i was at coral springs christian when the, within the first couple of years of me teaching i had a student named roberto roberto de lucerta and for some reason i'll never forget this it wasn't a big deal but uh i think it for me it was for some reason but roberto just raised his hand and asked a question and just said what's your favorite word it's just one of those kind of wasting time type of questions goes, what's your favorite word and without even thinking right out of my mouth came the word hallelujah. And I was like, hey, I'm a Bible teacher. That was probably pretty impressive for the class to see me come up with that that quickly, that it was hallelujah. And I I didn't mean for it to be anything like that. It just came out as my favorite word, hallelujah. And I would say from that spontaneous moment there, that that has proved to be true and has never changed. This is a wonderful word. I love that St. Anselm said this is an angelic word incapable of reproduction in any human language because it's praise for the one that we fully can't get our minds around or our arms around. It's praising the infinite El Shaddai Almighty God. This hallelujah is the best we can do in our finitude, in our limited capacities. The best we can do is shout hallelujah to him. Now, Psalms 113 through 118 are called the Hallel Psalms. Now you are becoming more and more educated by the minute now. So what does it mean to be a Hallel Psalm? It's a praise Psalm, correct? Hallel is the verb for praise. Okay, so the Hallel Psalms are the praise Psalms. You'll see those in 113 through 118. And those are required memorization for early Jewish students. Uh, In in their early education years, they were required to memorize Psalms 113 through 118 as the Hillel Psalms, the Praise Psalms. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we did the same? Mm -hmm. Psalms 146 through 150, the last five psalms of the psalm book in our Bibles all begin with this word, Hallelujah. Now, you may not have known that because the English translators translated it as what? It'll say, praise God, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But that's our Hebrew word, hallelujah, which I am much more fond of, quite frankly. And um, I would write that in your Bibles to tell you the truth. Verse one of those verses where it says, praise God, write your hallelujahs in there. Um, Verse two says, For true and righteous are his judgments. This is what they're singing the Alleluia's for. Because true and righteous are his judgments. You saw how ferocious his judgments were on Babylon. And now they're declared from heaven to be what? True. That was a true judgment. And that was declared to be a righteous judgment uh, upon them. Because he has judged the great harlot who has corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So here you have that heaven has given such profound praise to God because of this. God said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Now he does that and it receives great hallelujahs from heaven. So vengeance seems to be a word the Christian should avoid. And in a sense, we should because it's not ours. It's not ours to avenge. Even when the wrong is done to us, it's not ours to avenge. Revenge is God's, and he does it perfectly. He keeps those scales balanced, the scales of justice perfectly balanced when he does revenge or he avenges us. So um, now they're celebrating. It says his revealed acts as the owner of all salvation and glory and honor and power. And this also demonstrates what? That God has never abandoned his people. So here we see at the very end, God has not abandoned his people, especially his martyrs, but he's taking revenge upon their enemies. So avenging us is important to God. Isn't that amazing? Avenging us is important to God. Verse three. Again, they said, Alleluia. There's a second time. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. So there lends towards the eternal torment, um, understanding of hell that we have. Her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, notice they keep popping up in worship scenes, don't they? When worship is happening, it's our 24 elders and our four living creatures. They fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Now, there's our third time with the Alleluia. Now, these are, our <clears throat> these are our 24 elders, and as we said way back, that they represent the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New, <clears throat> Are our 24 elders up there, and they combined with the four creatures, and we saw that these creatures resembled a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle, which represent um courage strength wisdom and swiftness so in other words you have the animal world represented there along with mankind represented there along with the church both old and new testament up there in other words who's praising god it's all of heaven and all of earth it's all of creation remember this verse everything that has breath praise the lord everything that has breath sing your hallelujahs That's a picture of what's going on here after the destruction of Babylon and the avenging of God's people. All right, verse five. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. So here's a reiteration of the spirit of praise is now given by a voice from the throne. Now, usually when we get a voice from the throne, it's God. But now we know that this is not God because of the phrase, praise our God. So God wouldn't save himself, praise our God. This is some other voice from the throne uh, in the imperative tense telling us to praise our God. Verse 6, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, alleluia there's our fourth and final alleluia of the scriptures alleluia for the lord god omnipotent reigns alleluia for the lord god omnipotent reigns now listen great multitude they sound like many waters mighty thunderings saying alleluia for the lord god omnipotent reigns doesn't remind you of this sing that myself and I was talked out of it at the last minute so now did you hear after the hallelujahs what are they what did they sing in the Alleluia's for this very verse is for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth okay that's what the Alleluia's are being sung about so that incredible chorus Handel's Messiah that chorus there comes from this verse this is the, the great verse that that uh, is being sung about Here is verse six. Okay. Alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. It's glorious. Uh, Verse seven. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, a couple things to cover here. We are told here to be glad and rejoice for this occasion. Be glad and rejoice. Now, think of those words. Those words are dear to your, your heart. You've heard those before. Be glad and rejoice, except for they were given in the opposite order, correct? Rejoice and be glad. Where do we hear rejoice and be glad? These are the wonderful words of Jesus in Matthew 5. And what occasion does he give us to rejoice and be glad? Well, in verses 11 and 12 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's just what God judged in Babylon, isn't it? All the anti-God activity. Verse 12 says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. There's the words. Okay? Okay. So when all of Babylon is being Babylon to the Christian, that's when Jesus said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Listen, Christian blood got spilt through all of this. Christians got imprisoned through all of this. Christians got mocked and beaten and tortured through all of this. And what does our Lord say as he watches down for heaven? Rejoice in that moment, be exceedingly glad you have any idea the reward that you have coming to you. If you only knew how I've got your back, you would rejoice and be exceedingly glad in that moment. If you only can see the moment, you're going to suffer greatly. But if you can take my words, put them in your heart, have faith in those words, then in those terrible moments, your call is to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And here it is again, in the midst of all of that, now that it's been judged, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Why? Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. How did she make herself ready? To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, we've also, now we're back to this wedding language again. Back to the wedding language. The wedding language of us being a bride and Jesus being our bridegroom is certainly not a new concept in Revelation. We've talked about that in previous classes. Uh, If you look at Hosea chapter 2, you see there, Hosea chapter 2, it says, in verse 19 and 20, Says, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So there God in the Old Testament is speaking of this wedding relationship we're going to have with him, that he is going to betroth us to himself. Then in Isaiah's gospel, We see in chapter 54, starting at verse 5, God says, for your maker is your husband. Can you believe that? Your maker, he goes from being your creator to being your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Okay. Um, Now. So we get this wedding language again here in Revelation. And it talks about um, many times in the New Testament. I gave you some locations of more bridal terminology. Matthew 22 is going to speak of it. Matthew 25 is going to speak of it. Mark chapter 2 is going to speak of it. John 3 is going to speak of it. 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul will speak of it. As well as Ephesians 5, most famously Ephesians 5 where Paul will unquestionably say that God has arranged for a man to marry a woman so that there'll be a reflection of his relationship to his church uh, through human marriage. So how will we know the relationship between Christ and his church? He says, I give you weddings, I give you marriage. And the husband has a Christ role in there and the woman has a church role in those marriages. And we're to reflect that when I do premarital counseling, I let the couple know Are you willing and prepared? Are you preparing yourself to reflect the relationship between Christ and His church in this marriage? That's, that's the call for marriage. That's why God has us be married uh, together, plus godly offspring as well. All right. So I also wanted to note the donning of the linen by Christ's bride. It's described simply as clean and as bright. God dresses his own in white, the purity of white. So we come to him impure. Think of Isaiah's language. He says, though your sin be as scarlet, I shall make you as white as snow. Well, here we see at the wedding, he will don us in linens that are pure white. Um, Compare that with with the harlot. Um, I missed the word harlot in your, oh, there we go. Compare that with the scarlet and gold and jewels of the great harlot. So she's decorating herself in all of these colorful jewels and colorful linens. And then God destroys her and dresses his own in clean and white uh, garments, uh, the purity and the righteousness that they represent. Verse nine, then he said to me, write blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true sayings of god so here's an angelic witness to the truth of our belief in god and as jesus as his son and our savior so he's saying write these words down he said because these are the true sayings of god he said write them down because these are the true sayings of god so there's an angel saying hey what you're being told is true Well, Jesus, in John chapter 5, he gives us four witnesses to the truth of who he is. Now, these are important to know because every matter is established by witnesses. First and foremost, we look for witnesses. So Jesus, when he's battling the Pharisees, starting in verse 31 of chapter 5, will present to us four separate witnesses saying we are without excuse for believing in, in him as the truth. Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, why would he say, if I bear witness of myself, it's not true? He's not saying he's lying. He's saying that he established as God, as an Old Testament rule, that it takes two or three witnesses to establish a matter. So he said, if I didn't have any other witnesses, then you don't have to believe me, but I'm going to establish other witnesses besides myself. He says in verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. And he says, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. So John the Baptist, he said, who had massive following. We shouldn't see him as some loner out on the Jordan River. He had thousands. Okay, he was a very popular prophet, so popular that when he insults the king's marriage, the king hesitates to execute him because of his popularity. Now, he does so later, but he hesitated at first. So, he says, John is a witness. He says, yet I don't receive testimony from man, but I say these that you might be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So he says, you got John the Baptist you could listen to and believe. you got the works that I do. He'll say, if you don't believe me, at least look on the works that I do. Who else but God could heal the blind and cleanse the leper and stop the flow of blood of the woman and raise those dead children and raise Lazarus' friend, uh, give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf? Who else? In Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is trying to get out of going to Pharaoh and says, Uh, I don't speak well. God says, who made man's mouth? Who makes man either mute or speaking, deaf or hearing, blind or seeing, lame or walking? Isn't it I the Lord? So God establishes that he does those things and then Jesus comes along and does those very things. So that's why he'll tell the two witnesses that John the Baptist sends to him to say, are you the coming one or should we wait for another? Jesus' reply to that is, go tell John what you've heard and you've seen, and then i will say this, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised. He's going back to the Exodus 4 passage where God says, I do those things. Now Jesus is saying, go tell him what you heard and saw. I'm doing the things that only God can do. So if you don't believe my words, at least believe the works that I do that you should know only God could do. So I have John the Baptist, I have the works which God gave me to finish. What else does he have? He says, and the father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding you because whom he sent him, you do not believe. So he says, first of all, there was a voice from heaven in his baptism saying, this is my son whom I love. On the mountain, James, John, and Peter heard the voice. This is my son, listen to him. But he says, if you don't have my word abiding you, you're not gonna hear that. But that's a third witness and what's his fourth and final witness this fourth and final witness by the way Mike quote it earlier because it's the foundation for my christ in the old testament class it's verse 39 that is the foundation for that class christ in the old testament what is it jesus says the fourth witness is this the scriptures he says you he's talking to pharisees and their scriptures are only the old testament mind you they don't have the new testament when he says this so about the old testament jesus says you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Listen, do you understand how arrogant that sounded to them in that moment? The only thing you ever studied in rabbi school, in Hebrew school, the only thing your parents ever told you about and you ever told your children about, the only thing you ever talked about when you talked about God was me. Can you imagine that man showing up and saying that? How would we treat him if he showed up at your church and said that? You guys are teaching the Bible today? Great, because that's the book that speaks of me. We would escort him out off the property, wouldn't we? Okay, because we know Jesus already came. But Jesus said that to these scholarly Jews about their learning. All you ever did was learn about me. So in that Christ in the Old Testament class, we're going to go back in the Old Testament and see what he's talking about there. And then he finishes in verse four, he says, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. He's saying you've had these four witnesses. Okay, You've had John the Baptist, the works that I perform, my Father, and the Scriptures. Okay? Now, in Revelation, now we have an angelic witness saying, these words are true, so write them down. It's hard to get all five of them together to testify about a lie, correct? It's hard to get uh, Jesus himself to say that as a lie, But he says, don't even count that. But John the Baptist would have to be lying. The works that he's doing would have to not come from God. They'd have to come from somewhere else. Um, The voice from heaven would have to be lying. And the scriptures would have to be misleading. And now the angelic host that's speaking to us in Revelation would have to be wrong. So for the non-believer, they had overcome those six things there. Now, those are witnesses. Those are testifying to us. Okay. Verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right, so here's an angel showing John these great things. And John does something I think would come naturally to a lot of us. He falls at his feet to worship him. That angel says, do not worship me. You only worship God, okay? Only God, no angel, no person. So neither Mary, nor the angels, nor any man, nor any other created thing in heaven or on earth or under the earth is worthy of our worship. Let's talk about Mary. Where does Mary worship come from? There is no proof text to turn to. I can't bring you to the Bible to show you why they're worshiping Mary. It's not in here. There is no Mary worship that's authorized by scripture, but there is authorization from an angelic being saying you only worship God. Jesus never refused worship. He never saw it as inappropriate for himself. When he was in the form of an itinerant Jewish preacher, he received worship without hesitation. So Mary, there's no proof text to go to. How about angels? Well, we actually have a dictionary definition of angels, except for it's not in a dictionary. It's actually in something more reliable than a dictionary. It's in our scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 defines an angel for us. And let's see if he should be worshiped or not. The writer of Hebrews says, speaking of angels, he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They become ministers to the saved. Is what the angels are, uh, according to the writer of Hebrews. Angels are ministers to the saved population of God's people. Not to be worshipped, as the angel in Revelation says. How about man? Is there any men worthy of our worship? I draw your attention to Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter, who some, as you know, will say is the first pope. We would not say that. We wouldn't even say there is a popery at all. Not a popery, a popery. All right, now, there is popery. I've seen it, but there's no popery. All right, I hope that's clear enough anyways. <laughs> Sorry, let's move on. Now, in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 24, the apostle Peter is going into the Roman centurion Cornelius' home. And this is going to be the defining moment of realizing that God is out to save Gentiles. And it says, "In the following day they entered Caesarea. This is Peter and the contingency that went to gather Peter. It says, Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now, Cornelius had an angelic announcement given to him to go and fetch Peter because Peter has something to say to you. So he's going to think Peter's this big, fat, hairy deal, correct? An angel had me go send for him. This Peter must be all that and a bag of chips. So he goes and gets Peter, and Peter comes to him, and it says that he fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted, up, lifted him up, saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. Okay. So get up off the floor, I am just a man. And if anybody's a man, he's not worthy of worship, okay? I don't care what boy band he sings for. I don't care if he's Paul, Ringo, John, or the other one. They're not worthy of worship, okay? Not worthy of worship. Now, all right, what about created things? Is there any created things worthy of worship? In 1 Samuel 5, 1-5, through 5, I'm not going to go there and read from the text. I'll simply tell you that when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they brought the Ark of the Covenant into their temple of their god, Dagon, they go in to worship Dagon the next day and Dagon had fallen over. And so they put him up again. They go in the next day to worship him. He's fallen over. His head has been detached and his hands have been detached. I believe that's God's way of saying your God has no wisdom, your God has no power. And therefore, is that broken piece of concrete or whatever it was worthy of worship? In fact, the Bible gives you the impression that he's laying um, prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant in in the posture of worship as if he's worshiping our God, Dagon was. So... Now, no, nothing under heaven is worthy of this worship. It is God and God only and Jesus and Jesus only. Now, the second part of verse 10 there is a confusing verse. And there's not a lot of help you can get in scholarship for it, where it says that God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this could mean that the witness, which the Christian testifies of Jesus, or it could mean the testimony of Jesus himself is the spirit of prophecy. Either way or both ways shows Jesus worthy of the world's worship. Can you imagine any person, any being, that if all of the history of the world's population, whatever number that is in the trillions, I'm sure, because in this present moment we have about 8 billion, imagine if we project it all the way into the past into the future. The trillions of people that have lived all got together and sang worship to him, saying that he's great and awesome and mighty and the best and everything else. It's not overkill. It fits him, it suits him, it's appropriate for him. Just like nobody freaks out when they sing happy birthday to you on your birthday, nobody goes, I can't believe you're singing to that person. That's absurd. No, you're actually worth a happy birthday song once a year, aren't you? Okay. We are, we're worth that. We're not worth the world's worship day in and day out, night and day like Jesus is though. He, that's his, his capacity, his worthiness is, is all of that worship. And that's what you see in heaven in a wonderful way in the book of Revelation. All right, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened. <clears throat> John says, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, quick story, true story. We went to Israel in 2019 with Calvary. (coughs) And we went to the east gate of Jerusalem where we believe Jesus is coming back on the white horse through that east gate. Except for there's a major, major problem there because the Muslims who are in charge of that area now locked the gate, all right? So our eschatology is all messed up because somebody put a padlock on the gate Jesus was supposed to come through. Now, as we're looking at this gate from a hill... We're up, we're elevated above it, and we're looking down on this part of Jerusalem, and it's, it's kind of residential. You see a lot of their houses and stuff on this hill, and so there's a road down there. Now, it's, it's quite cold, and it's quite rainy, so we've got many, many layers on, and my phone that I'm taking all these pictures with is buried in these pockets, and as I take my eyes off the east gate, and I look down on the road, I see something that doesn't strike me as odd at the moment, so I go back to focusing on the east gate. And then I realized what I just saw and I'm putting it together and I can't believe what I had just saw and I'm digging to get to my phone as quick as possible because the moment is, is leaving fast. And I get my phone out just in time to snap the picture because what it was in the middle of this, this downtown street in Jerusalem with no farms around or anything. This is pretty built up area at the East gate was a white horse. No saddle, no rider, no nothing. Just a white horse. And I thank goodness I got the picture because I would not tell this story if I didn't because it's not even that believable. But it was a white horse all by itself. So I started saying to people, the horse is here. We just need the rider. Okay, the horse is here. We just need the rider. So the horse is at the escape, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, Jesus just got to jump on and we're at, we're, we would already be out of here. All right. So anyways, So I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So conquering heroes of this era, after they've conquered a land, they would jump on a white stallion, a white horse and they would ride back into their hometown on that white horse. So when people saw him coming, they would already know he won. So Jesus is on that white horse of victory. Of military victory. Now, what confused a lot of the Jewish population 2,000 years ago? They thought that's how he was supposed to come the first time. Conquering hero of military victory. That's the second time when he defeats Babylon. Okay? Now, uh, how did Jesus come the first time? Lowly on a donkey. That's when he first received their worship as their king. And he didn't tell them to be quiet. He didn't hush them up. Right? He received their worship. That was a Sunday, right? What do we call that Sunday? Palm Sunday, right? They throw the palm leaves down. He's riding in on the donkey to fulfill the Zechariah prophecy. Now, why does Jesus hide, try to hide his identity for three years? Because when he finally receives their worship as their king on Sunday, he's hanging on a tree on that Friday. It doesn't take very long. Once he lets the word uh, circulate that he is who he is. It only took five days to kill him. Four days to betray him and five days to kill him. So, he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So he's called faithful. That's the Greek word pistos. Which means absolutely trustworthy in each and every circumstance. He's absolutely trustworthy in each and every circumstance. So let me ask you guys this. Have you trusted him that way in each and every circumstance of your life? Because if he didn't, we were wrong in that moment, not him. Okay, he's absolutely faithful and trustworthy. He is called faithful and he is called true. That's alethanos. He's called true, alethanos, meaning both he brings truth to us and he embodies truth. He brings it, and he embodies it. Remember John 14, 6? I am the truth. He didn't say, I'm a truth teller. He says, I'm actually the truth. When you tell the truth, you're telling Jesus. He is the truth. But it also means, in this context, that he's absolute and pure reality. He is what reality is. That's why it's a farce whenever you watch something on TV called a reality show. There's no reality apart from Christ. He is the only reality, and all things that are in him are real. Everything else is the lies of Babylon. Okay? So he is faithful, and he is true, and he is the truth. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Okay? So this is where we get our idea that there is just war. Jesus fights just wars. And in our country, we have what's called just war theory, where it ha- to go to war, certain criteria have to be met. That shows that it's a just cause, a just war. Can't tell you if people still follow that, but I can tell you it's in writing somewhere. Now, there is no fiction in Jesus. He is pure non-fiction, he is pure truth, he is pure reality. He is our reality, he is everybody's reality. Verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire. We've had that language way back, as early as the first chapter of this book. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Okay, now wait a second here. First of all, eyes like a flame of fire. We mostly understand that to mean an eyes like a flame of fire would be eyes of judgment, righteous judgment. Okay. Now, he has on his head many crowns. Emperors of the past would be known to wear more than one crown at a time. And and these would be diadems. And they'd wear these diadems to show how many nations they were over. So a crown per nation that they conquered and and they were over. Jesus has many crowns. There's no number given, I imagine, because you can't number them. He's over everything. He has all authority. Okay. Jesus will say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. These are the many crowns that he wears. And the word for crown here is not the victor's crown that Paul talks about we can get. We can get these victor's crowns for overcoming. This is the royal crown. This is the authoritative crown. This isn't somebody who just wins. This is somebody who's over everything. And uh, I gave you those, uh, those words. Um, this is the diadema, um, the royal crown, not the Stephanos, the victor's crown here in Revelation says he has a name written that um, no one knows except himself. Well, now that's interesting because we've had some, some words given for his name here. Okay. Well, I'm going to get into that in a few verses. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So what about this unknown name? There's various thoughts about this unknown name. First of all, some think it's the name Curios, which is Lord. Why would they think this name that no one knows would be Lord? That seems to be a pretty common name. Well, they actually, uh, for, for God, they pulled this from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, which is such an important paragraph in Scripture. I do believe, even though all Scripture is inspired, this one seems to be a bit more important, at least in my life, than some other areas for me. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, why do they think this name that's written that no one knows might be Curios or Lord? Well, Paul writes this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, where's my students? Why is it there? What is it for? Okay, so let's see why it's there and what it's for. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and give him what? The name which is above every name. Now, what name is that? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those of earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is kurios. He's Lord. So some attach this Lord to Jesus that At some point, everybody's going to say that name of his, that he's the Lord, okay? To the glory of God the Father. So some use that passage for that. Some use that same passage to say that the name that he has that no one knows is Yahweh, that he's Yahweh, he's Jehovah. He's the God of the burning bush that told Moses, my name is I Am, which is the Hebrew Yahweh, okay? Now, and they'll say that because the Philippians 2 passage say he was given the name that's above every name. And certainly to the first century Jew, that is no question the Yahweh name. The name is above every name. That Jesus has been given that name because he came in the form of Yahweh. He came as Yahweh. He didn't consider robbery to be equal with Yahweh. So that would be the name there is a second suggestion. It could be Curios or Lord. It could be Yahweh uh, the third option I gave you is some field. It's a name that will only be revealed to us who make it to his king, make it to his kingdom or his kingship in heaven at that time. That that's just something for us to find out when we get there. A fourth suggestion is the fact that these Christophanies that you'll see in Genesis 32, Judges 13. There's another one in Joshua, I think, chapter four. They're asked what their name is. And these Christophanies won't give their name. At the most, they'll say, my name is Wonderful. Okay, and that's kind of like the Isaiah prophecy. He shall be called Wonderful. So so literally when I, Isaiah, Isaiah says, he shall be called Wonderful, Isaiah's contemporaries would say, the one that appeared to Joshua, the one that appeared to Jacob, um, the one that appeared to Samson's father, Manoah, that said his name is Wonderful, that one is the one from the past That's the one that in the future will be born of a virgin one day. That the virgin will be with child and they shall call his name wonderful. So they can make those connections in Isaiah's day that way by knowing these words. All right. Fifth possibility, it may be that this represents the infinitude of Christ and that we can never fully exhaust our learning of him. So it might be that he has a name that no one knows simply because it's representing that he's infinite and inexhaustible and that there's just parts of him we'll never ever know because even eternity is not long enough to learn about the infinite. Uh, We would need uh, to have started in eternity past and go to eternity future to learn about the infinite fully, if that's even possible. I'm not even trying to figure that out right now. But uh, perhaps that's what it's referring to. There's five suggestions and May I say all five could be completely off, okay? Um, Because what does it say in the passage? No one knows. No one knows what's going on there. But we'll get back to that in a few minutes. Let's go to verse 13. It says, he was clothed with a white, I'm sorry, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. First of all, in Genesis 37 we know that there's only one other robe in Scripture dipped in blood that's not Jesus's and that would be Joseph's right remember when his brothers Took his multicolored robe They killed the goat and they soaked his robe in the goat blood to say that to tell their father this and I want to read what they said to their father to show you how awful it is um, Genesis 37 Verse 31 it says, so they took Joseph's tunic, killed the kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colours, and they brought it to their father, and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? You know how evil you have to be to do that to your dad? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. And what does Jacob say now? A wild beast has devoured him. What are we studying in Revelation? The beast, right? What does Jacob say here? A wild beast has devoured him. And who is he referring to without realizing it? 11 of the 12 patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Can you believe that? They're the wild beast that devoured his son. Now they didn't kill him, but this is the picture that Jacob has not knowing it's his own sons that have done this to his other son. And his reference is a wild beast has done this to him. The people that are against God are often betrayed as beasts in the scriptures. Okay, Samson is called, called himself a dog. Am I a dog that you come after me with sticks? He's dressed in scale armor, so he looks serpentine. Um, we see uh, Jesus say of Herod, he says, go tell that fox, right? So there's constant references to the people that are against God as bestial, as animals, okay? And... Um, And that's what Jacob calls his sons without realizing it there. Now, for this robe dipped in blood, I turn your attention to Isaiah 63, which I think is directly referring to Revelation 19 here. Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, pointing to Revelation 19, says this, Who is this who comes from Edom, with dyed garments from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to say, well, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. Okay, so you see in God taking vengeance, Jesus on this horse taking vengeance, that his robe gets splattered with the blood. And, um, and I believe that's directly referring to Revelation 19, uh, 13 here. Now, it also says in this verse that his name is called the Word of God. So now in Jewish understanding, words were not just sounds that your mouth formed. Words had power and energy to them. Now, where would they get that? Well, God spoke everything into existence. So they know that his spoken word is what exact, was the exact thing that energized all the molecules to form light and to form the earth and to form everything else. So to them, the word had power to it. And I think they were right. Uh, the word had power to them. Now, remember when Jacob accidentally was blessed by Isaac. Isaac blessed Jacob thinking he was blessing Esau, right? And when Esau said, take it back, Jacob said, I can't. Now, we very easily will go, okay, what I said I didn't mean, now I'm going to flip it around. But they knew that a blessing went forth from Isaac's mouth, and it went forth, and Jacob received it, therefore it's done. That was the power of the word, power of the spoken word. It energized. It had something to it there. So um, God's creative power was released through his spoken word, and this helps make sense of Hebrews 4.12 which says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. So here in Revelation, it says he is called the word of God. And I'll come back to that as well in a moment. Verse 14 says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, most of scholarship does not see this army and white and clean as uh, the church. Most scholars do not see this as us in heaven fighting with Jesus. Uh, Henry Ironside's an exception. He does see this as the church, but most see it as the angelic host. And some of the reasons are that there's no blood on them. Um, We never see the angelic host in blood warfare. uh, Wounded. and and so forth so we certainly see jesus involved in that warfare and getting his robes dirty with the blood type of thing now another reason they don't think this is the church as the bride because we already saw the bride is dressed in linen bright and clean not white and clean so there's there could be a difference between bright and white but not necessarily so the bright could be any color whatsoever uh, that the the bride is wearing. Here, these that are with Jesus are in robes that are white and clean. So it seems that John would use the same exact adjectives here if it was the same group, but it doesn't seem to be the same group. Could be, uh, but perhaps not. Now, Jesus mentioned that he has 12 legions of angels at his beck and call that will come and fight for him. If you remember when Peter drew his sword and he took off Malchus's ear, what did Jesus say to Peter? Don't you know that I have 12 legions of angels that'll come and fight for me if I ask them to? Okay, so that's why the, the angels are more put into this description than any humans are ever put into this description. So this seems to be an angelic host on these white horses, Maybe. Uh, But those are the reasons why Moses Scholarship leans that way on this. Uh, Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. Now, next week you're gonna see a lot of connections that I make between Old Testament and New Testament. And it's going to show the 66 books really operating as just one book. It's way too much harmony to really see them as 66. They're, they're too harmonized. They become one. You'll see that in one of the most profound examples I know of next week. But for now, what I'll show you is this. This idea of him treading out the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty, I believe is pointing us back to John chapter 2 at the wedding in Canaan of Galilee where Jesus is accused by the master of the banquet of not following the wedding custom. He says, you don't follow the wedding custom because we always save the bad wine for last. You did not do that. You just gave us the best wine last. You didn't follow the wedding custom. Well, Jesus doesn't defend himself because he really did not violate the wedding custom because here we see in Revelation 19, he's treading out the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. That's the bad wine And this is the last wine. So he did indeed save the bad bad wine for last. Uh, The wine of his wrath is what the master of the banquet didn't know was still coming. So, um, verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I absolutely love that description now. This is the third time in this chapter we would be, that Christ's name is referred to. Three times his name is referred to. In verse 12, it says there's a name that nobody knows. Okay? And I, as I suggested, that could refer to His limitless being. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, nobody knows the Son except the Father. So that, that might be referring to his name that only the Father would know. Now, But it also said his name is the word of God. We just read that his name is the word of God. There's a name that nobody knows. Then it says his name is the word of God. Referring to John 1. (coughs) That in the the beginning was the word. And that word was with God. And that word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And that word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So there we have uh, the word as a representation of his incarnation into the flesh where he tabernacles or dwells with his people. Now the third time we see right here in this verse, it says he has a name written, king of kings and Lord of lords. And this name refers to all authority. If you have a king that you give your utter obedience to and even your life for, well, he's that king's king that that king would have to give his life for. He's the Lord of all lords, okay? And Isaiah has a wonderful verse in what we call the the Songs of Isaiah, and I believe this is the seventh and final song of Isaiah, where one of the verses says, kings will shut their mouths on account of him, referring to Jesus. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. And what that means is, if you walked into the presence of a king, you see this with Queen Esther, when she addresses the king, you're not allowed to speak, unless you're you're invited to speak. You can't just walk in and start speaking. And the idea is the king is too majestic to just walk in and talk to. You have to be invited to speak. You don't speak unless you're asked to speak. So you have to shut your mouth based on the majesty of the king. Well, Isaiah said kings will shut their mouths on account of him. So if kings have to shut their mouths on account of Jesus, what does that make him? The king of kings. He's the king's king see that okay so he is king of kings and lord of lords now this is where my students in high school like to say why can't I get a tat Jesus is tatted Jesus has king of kings and lord of lords written on his thigh well I think it's referring to the robe on his thigh it's on his robe and on his thigh could mean both it's on his robe and his thigh I tend to think it's just on the robe. I can't imagine who the person Jesus goes to for a tattoo. But it could be both, or it could just be his robe. And why on his thigh? Well, what are you picturing here? Where is Jesus seated in this chapter? On a white horse, on a stallion. And if if we're with John on the ground watching this, what's eye level with us? His thigh. Okay, so... Right, you know, when you go to Publix, okay, what, what products are eye level with you? The products that make them the most money, right? The, the one with the highest profit margin, because whatever's eye level with you is going to get your first attention, okay? So, here, a first attention to us is Jesus is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So, who exactly are you worshiping? Okay, there's nobody higher than Jesus. The king's king and the the Lord's Lord, okay? The Lord of lords. All right. Now, scholarship has very little to say about why it's on his thigh other than what I just told you. But tune in next week because we're going to speak a lot about the thigh of Christ uh, next week. All right. So if you don't tune in next week, I'm just warning you, you're going to be at many a dinner party and that discussion is going to be about the thigh of Christ and you're going to sit there not knowing what to say. Okay, so tune in next week so you can be socially accepted at these occasions. All right, here we go. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Wow. This is the fulfillment of the complete defeat of God's enemies as predicted by Ezekiel. See how Revelation is bringing us to all these areas of Scripture. What a great book this is. It's fulfilling things all over, Both of our Testaments, mostly the Old Testament. Ezekiel 39, verse 4 and 5. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. There's a prediction of this event. Verse 17 to 20, same chapter. And as for you, son of man, Thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field, saying, assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. So what is this for the birds? The death of the wicked are communion for the birds of prey, aren't they? What does he say to them? You're going to eat flesh and drink blood. This is another, this is more of an anti-communion than a communion. Okay? You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, of all of the fatlings of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you're full and drink blood till you're drunk at my sacrificial meal which I am sacrificing for you. You should be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war. That's who they're going to eat says the Lord God. Picture of Revelation 19 here. All right, verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth that followed this beast, the Antichrist, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. I can't even imagine what thoughts could possibly be in the heads of anybody that are gathering armies together to fight against Jesus Christ. Uh, His eyes are like fire. He has many crowns on his head. And they say, we are going to kill you. Can you even imagine the blindness involved going on here? Verse 20. Okay, so you ready for this great battle? Kings of the earth versus Jesus Christ. Pay-per-view only, right? This is going to be intense. Let's see what's happening here. What's it say? Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Where's the battle? Where was there any fighting? It's all built up and quicker than a Mike Tyson fight, it's over. It's just over. And they're cast into hell forever and ever. It doesn't even tell you and the battle went this way and the battle went that way and, and this happened and that happened. Just as these evil people gathered together to fight and then they're cast into the lake of fire. It's all over. Just like that. That's who you've been asked to trust in. That's who you're asked to put your faith in is that one. All of that might. All right. Verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh just as they were told to be gathered to do so. The birds of prey eat the victims of Christ there. Now, it says they were killed by the sword of his mouth. Okay, the sword of his mouth. That's his word. Okay, and the sword of the spirit is the word of God, correct? So it's this. It's as if their judgment was this. Jesus is showing them the word and saying, you've been told. Okay, I was revealed to you. I called you to myself and you rejected. Okay, This is what holds us guilty or if we're found in Christ, guiltless because of his sacrifice. So he's judged by the sword of his word. The word is the sword of the spirit. So Chapter 18 was great and utter annihilation of all the world's systems. Chapter 19 is that celebration that God has not abandoned his people. He actually fought for us. And he obviously won. So may we ever be agents of the Lord who bring this tender word of God's mercy to all we know. What tender word of mercy? Listen. Hear this verse again. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish like chapter 18, but have everlasting life like those who are singing the hallelujahs of chapter 19. Okay? It's only one chapter difference, but it's an eternity of difference. So may we be found singing our hallelujahs to him who is worthy night and day, there's one thing I could wish for the church globally, certainly in our country, but globally, is that our prayers and our worship would look more like these people in heaven who are singing their hallelujahs. It would take more of a primary spot in our hearts and our lives, prayer and worship. And we would do it with an awe and a wonder that why am I even invited to speak to such a king as this? The King of all Kings. Okay? I highly doubt anybody within the sound of my voice will ever be even invited by Joe Biden to speak to him. But you're invited by the King of all Kings to speak with him always. We are humbled and over, we should be overwhelmed. I need to be more overwhelmed, more overwhelmed than I've ever been at this. So may we grow together in realizing. Incredible love of John 316 that was intended for us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, sitting victorious upon your white horse, Lord. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, that you've cared for us so perfectly and so greatly. Lord, the amount of patience you show each and every one of us is beyond our capacity for patience, and we thank you for that. You are long suffering towards us, Lord. Forgiving. Even the mistakes that I've made tonight, Lord, I offer to you to be forgiven. And that which, Lord, was faithful and true, that you would magnify your words in the hearts of all the people listening. Lord, so we would look and be authentically Christians. And all the beauty that that word entails, may it be so for your name's sake, and our lives. Amen. Question
1: number one reads: My friend and I were talking, and she said, "When we are in heaven, we can talk about all the times we
0: shared on Earth." Do we know if this is true? I suspect it is, but we don't know that from Scripture. I don't know of any Scripture that talks about us, um, and and. Talks about us, you know, talking about earthly times or things like that. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just means I don't have verses, at least that I'm aware of, that would suggest that um, we are going to remember. Uh, it certainly seems logical that we would. Um, it's just not spoken about in Scripture that I know of. If any, if any of you know verses, I'd love to know what they are. Um, you can send those into Mike. Um, but at this point, I would say I would certainly think so. I don't know why not. Number one, number two, I don't have scripture to support that though. Thank
1: you, Pastor Bill. Question number two reads The Catholic Church states they cannot bless same sex marriages. They do not support adoption of children by same sex couples, but they have a gay priest leading their congregation. Is all of this not a sin and a contradiction against biblical principles?
0: Yeah, well, I would presume that there's no one Catholic church that does all three of those, where they, that, that one institution under that one roof says um, no gay adoption, no gay marriage, and that coming from the mouth of a gay priest. Uh, I would think the ones that have gay priests support gay marriage and gay adoption. Uh, I, I would imagine there's some very liberal Catholic churches that would allow all of that and there's some very strict ones uh, that w- would not so um, is that contradictory of course it is um, but I don't think any one church that you could walk through their doors would be in that contradiction of uh, you can't adopt you can't marry but I can lead the church as a gay person uh, my my the only observations I've had they were all one way or they're all the other that not one single building uh had a priest that um forbid others where he was actually guilty himself so um so uh if you look at the catholic church as a whole yes both exist both all those scenarios exist in contradictory ways under the big umbrella of it all but as an individual church i wouldn't think you would see that contradiction happen. I think if they allow for gay adoption, they would allow for gay marriage, they would allow for gay ordinations, Um, and if they don't, they wouldn't allow for any of them. Uh, That's the only observations I've had on that. I don't know if anybody knows any exceptions to that, but uh, I don't know of exceptions to that.
1: Question number three reads, if our hearts are wicked and we are never to judge others because of what is in our own hearts or minds, like lust without action, or if someone we know who is Christian is constantly criticizing others, we know it's wrong, and we want to distance ourselves from that person without being hurtful, how then do we remove any and all thoughts from our human minds? It sounds like we cannot win for losing.
0: Okay, so let's tear that one out, tear, unpack that one a little bit. Um, we're never going to rid of ourselves rid ourselves of uh, sinful thoughts. That's out of the question. I think there's a misunderstanding about judging people in the Scripture. Um, judge not lest you be judged. And then you also have Paul saying judgment begins in the house of God. So which is it? Well, uh, I think if we look at it contextually, I believe Christians are called to judge other Christians. We're supposed to say, hey, what are you doing? You know, you, you claim this and, and, and you're doing that. I think we're supposed to hold each other accountable in those ways. Judgment begins in the house of God that way. We're not to hold the unbeliever to that state. It doesn't doesn't work to say to a a gay couple you can't get married when they don't believe in the God that you're getting your your information from. You're getting your law from a God that they don't believe in. Uh, So... um, I think we're to be more evangelical towards the unbeliever than judgmental. And I think that's the importance of not judging those outside the church um, is they don't recognize our judge. So it'd be much more effective to have them believe in our judge and then we hold them up in the light of the scriptures at that point. So um, I I imagine the question is coming from the, the reference to John 8, Uh, that I made where people are dropping their stones likely because Jesus is pointing out their spiritual adultery as Pharisees that they've committed. So how could they hold this woman guilty of physical adultery when they're guilty of spiritual adultery? And um, so with that, how do we ever judge anybody? Well, we will never be perfect judges at all. But I do believe as Christians, we're to hold other Christians accountable. And and, uh, judging is a word that's not, Heard easily in the Christian community or without the Christian community uh, but that is the word we're to to judge each other according to the scriptures and sharpen each other hold each other accountable and uh, and so forth but uh, I believe where we're not to do that is to people that don't hold our standard um, you know what i what I share with people about if you have a strong opinion on abortion or Or gay uh, marriage and things like that uh, the 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 only sure way to get people to agree with you is to witness to them and if they get saved then watch what they say especially about creation evolution the the atheist and evolution and the Christian and creation will argue till they're blue in the face and not budge either one in any direction but the atheist comes to Christ you won't even have to he'll become a creationist that way 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us this. It says, who can know the mind of man except for the spirit that's in that man? Okay, who's the only one that knows what's on my mind right now? Me, the spirit in me. It says, the same is true of God. Who can know the mind of God except for the spirit of God? And now, lest you think that we can never know the mind of God because only the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. Paul says in the next verse, and it's that spirit that God has given to you. He's given you the spirit of God so you can know the mind of God. That's why Christians should be like-minded on all these topics, because we should all be pulling from the Spirit of God that lets us know the mind of God. And if the mind of God has revealed His will towards something, then we don't have any right to argue that anymore. Okay? Even if you hesitate on the abortion issue, and you kind of think it's a woman's right, what I would say is this. I'm going to say it, and I imagine some of you won't come back but I think it's the only faithful thing to say. And it says, who cares what you think? If God has spoken, your opinion no longer matters to anybody. Um, my opinion matters to nobody if God has spoken in on the topic. He is God and we are not. And we are not to argue with him or challenge his wisdom. Um, he's that authoritative. And now you probably have bosses that you treat more as God than, you, than God. You, you, your boss says to do this and you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Well, how much more so God? Okay, We're not in any position to go debating with God. We can ask God questions. We can say why and, and wrestle with him. But to say he's wrong when it's in his word otherwise, you're just wrong. You're just going to be wrong on those issues. So the best thing you can do to win somebody over in these heated debates is to evangelize them. Let them get the spirit of God so they can know the mind of God. And then when they know the mind of God, I bet you they agree with you on that issue then without you even trying to win the argument. The spirit of God will win them over on that.
1: The second and last question reads, "Um, is hell the exact equal measure
0: of horror as heaven is of all things good? That does seem to be a balance that um, doesn't seem too far-fetched to me. Uh, I certainly don't know. Um, There's nothing like that in scripture, except for it seems to be the fullness of blessedness in heaven and the fullness of misery in hell. So in that regard, I would say uh, it doesn't bother me at all for people to speak like that. I think there might be some sort of equivalency uh, that way. I think we keep growing in love and, and joy for all eternity. I think our billionth year in heaven will be better than our first year in heaven. I just think that's part of learning and growing about the infinite God. And I do believe people in hell get madder and angry and more hostile throughout all of eternity. So can you imagine how unhappy you are when you're angry? Imagine that you grow in that all the time, how awful that would be. It's just like you see in Babylon. If you know, people see these plagues and they don't repent, they get more hostile. It's part of human nature. You know, the stubborn heart when they get mad at something they just increase their anger rather than apologize very often so uh, yeah seems logical but again we're not told this last question is probably a question that we've all run into and it's a little bit heavy-hitting uh, but the, the question reads
1: uh, last week pastor Billy spoke of how jesus brings comfort to people who have lost family in christ what would Jesus say to someone who's lost a loved one who is not in Christ?
0: What would Jesus say? Is that what you asked? Yes. Oh, I don't know. Um, let's see. You know, when I hear of an overdose or a suicide or anything like that, um, and there's been no indication of any sort of, um, Salvific moment for that person, nobody can point to a time where they said a prayer or got baptized or anything, and now they're gone uh and th- that person gave us no reason to hope that they might be in heaven. The best I could ever think to share with a family in that situation is that I could tell the truth about the incredible inestimable mercy of God, and I probably wouldn't say it so specifically as I'm sure your loved one received the mercy, but I would certainly talk about the mercy of God, and whether it just be for their own hearts or whether they apply it to their their lost loved one or not, but I certainly would not say that they're in hell. I would not ever voice that to somebody. Um, uh, I think the most fair job I could do is to say. That uh God's mercy is astounding. Um, and um, I, I listen, you know, when Paul Applegate calls and asks if we can do memorial, you know the first question any of us ask? Were they saved? Why? <laughs> because one is easy to do and the other is very difficult to do. So um I, did, uh, I went to a memorial Saturday morning and I did another memorial Saturday afternoon. Both saints of people, just uh, incredible people and very easy to do those memorials. One was easier than the other. The other guy, the first guy that I didn't do, he was just a strong Christian man, generosity through the roof, talked about Jesus every day. Uh, the one that I did was Catholic and a little, little more difficult Um, but I was very happy to hear uh, he he was a politician, uh, and uh, other politicians were there who would talk about him wanting to start a uh, political meeting in prayer. I was very happy to hear that. That helped a lot. Um, And uh, people talked about uh, his faith a lot and his incredible heart towards disadvantaged people where he met a deaf boy And He held the deaf boy up in front of his face and just smiled so brightly to him and This person that was speaking noticed that there were tears running down his face as he did He just had such a heart for the disability of this boy Um, So all those things together tell me Show me a picture of my Savior. That's what my Savior looks like. So I was very happy to hear those three testimonies of his faith Um, but it's just not it's just never, ever, ever easy. Uh, in fact, when I was at the Saturday morning memorial, another pastor who was doing a, a memorial that afternoon for a, a suicide victim who received Christ as a, as a young teenager, but then rebelled and got into some nasty stuff and killed himself. And he was just asking me, how would I preach that? And I said, oh, I'll be happy to talk to you after this memorial's over. But then, unfortunately, I had to leave that memorial early to get to my memorial, and we never met. So I got to find out how he did. But, um, but it's just difficult. And that's why evangelism is so important. And that's why I'd say, you know, for the sake of us who do memorials, please tell all your friends about Jesus. So we're asked to do their memorial. We're not in that position. But more importantly, that they're not in the position of not being with Jesus forever. So um, there's just nothing more, more important there's nothing more important. And I would say the importance of this outweighs all the combined importances of everything else going on in everybody's life. So, you know, share share what you believe. And you've got a ton to back it up. And sometime next year, I'm sure one of these classes will do apologetics. And we'll show what I always say is this. There's no way Christianity is not true. There's not even a possibility left for it to be not true. It's almost where we ask, where does faith come in in all of this? Because it it just has to be true when you look at all the angles of proof. Uh, There's no way this thing could exist without it being true. So anyways, uh, I think I'm rambling on and on and on. So um, it's very difficult is all I can say. very, very difficult.